Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, October 1st, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. So, guys, as we have been predicting or anticipating, uh, the effort yesterday to pass some kind of major spending measure failed. Uh, The infrastructure, the hard infrastructure, $1 trillion bill did not get a vote, as Nancy Pelosi had said it would. Uh, That vote was supposed to be on Monday. Then she pushed it to yesterday, and there was no vote because, as she has often said, she will not bring a bill to the floor if she doesn't have the votes, and she didn't have the votes, meaning that the progressives succeeded in derailing the trillion dollar spending package because they want to use it as a lever to get other Democrats, particularly two Democrats in the Senate, to agree to a gigantic spending budget reconciliation bill of some sort that the price tag right now is at three and a half trillion dollars. But if it is ever to pass, which is really the subject of the show uh, as we go forward, uh, isn't going to be anywhere near that size. Um, Noah, you noted in the fact that uh, Biden's main political accomplishment this year, which was the negotiation of and the passage in the Senate of this bipartisan measure that got 69 votes, meaning it got 19 Republican votes, uh, including the Senate majority leader's vote, uh, Senate minority leader's vote, Mitch McConnell's, for the hard infrastructure bill. This was his major political accomplishment of 2021, has now been uh, derailed or at least paused or held or something like that. And yet there was an odd note of triumphalism in the Remarks of Democrats last night and in the coverage by all kinds of nominally objective reporters who were who are tasked with analyzing or bringing the news of what's going on on Capitol Hill to the American people. Yes, apparently we're closer to a deal now than we have ever been, um, <clears throat> which is a, a, a strange remark to say at the, at the moment when an impasse has become so apparent that it's scuttled not one but two opportunities scheduled opportunities to vote on this bipartisan infrastructure deal um it's in real trouble i don't know why people are pretending as though it's not now there's brave face that you hear from leadership like nancy pelosi we're working we're closer whatever that's there's a genuine actual like uh you know belief on the part of progressives and people who uh affiliate with progressivism under the guise of uh, objective reporting um, that they believe that they have a victory here and that they're closer to achieving their goals. I don't think they've ever been farther away. The calendar is a real obstacle. Now Um, the house is still in session. They didn't adjourn last night. So this is the same session from yesterday. Today's the day to get something passed. Otherwise they start running into uh, they're away that they're not in session. The house isn't in session next week. The debt ceiling becomes this real priority in the next week, and that's going to derail any negotiations over something new. And there has to be something new when it comes to this reconciliation package. Yesterday, we got news from uh, in the form of a memo from Senator Manchin's office that he has a ceiling in the form of $1.5 trillion. And this was taken as some sort of an earth-shattering sh- revelation that they finally had a number from this guy. But I remember saying $1.5 trillion myself. It's not like this, not like this was a number that was floating around. And um, some had noted that- It doesn't that even Joe matter. Manchin, right. But Joe Manchin doesn't... had said something similar, though, in uh, remarks in March to George Stephanopoulos. So it's not like anybody who's paying attention apparently absorbed this by osmosis. I didn't know where I got that number, but I got it and I remembered it. Um, And if we're going to start renegotiating this package, again, it's not just like, okay, we'll take this down to 1.5 trillion. You have to know what the heck you're voting on, what this cost is associated with what it actually does. This is going to be a very complicated renegotiating process. And if they're starting from square one, 
it's going to take us into Christmas, at which point it's Christmas. After that, it's the midterms, and then everything becomes political. And the notion here that they can just pick up this ball and run with it after last night's debacle, which follows Monday's debacle, it strikes me as fanciful. This thing is on life support. And there's there's going to be more scrutiny on what the bill actually would contain now. The, 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 the age of it's just a number, you know, uh, messaging is is dead. Um, I just want to make a point about this, the triumphalism, though, that you're talking about. It seems to me in sort of uh, a series of events, political events now, there's everyone on every side is a Baghdad Bob about everything now. I think that's, that's also a sort of new post-Trump reality about our politics. That's another sort of depressing, um, clownish kind of banana Republic approach to crisis that we've, that we've, that we're now in. That's another, there's a, Jonah Goldberg has a pet theory about that, that definitely predates Trump. It's that the decline of parties nationally has been such that it's, uh, that they're no, they're, they're just a nominal force now. And that has the centrifugal force has led everybody who adheres to those parties to anoint themselves press secretaries. They, they're, they're acting as though they're flax on behalf of these very weak institutions because the institutions can't do it anymore. Look, Josh Marshall, who runs Talking Points Memo, which is, I don't know, maybe now the uh, most senior blog to have transformed into a ongoing profit-making news site, makes a little bit of money, very impressive. It's now, I think, 20 years that, that Josh has been running this site. Um, and, and uh, you know, he... He has become this kind of peculiar cheerleader, um, going cheerleader for sort of like a progressive causes. Going, you know, using his platform on Twitter to talk about how to primary uh, Senator Cinema in Arizona to punish her for her behavior and that sort of thing. He's been doing nothing but talking about these bills for six months, and last night he tweeted the following quote. If there's no deal tonight, that's good. Jamming something like this, a vast historic consequence, into the wee hours of the night for no reason makes no sense. They actually seem to be negotiating now. That's good. Let it take a couple of days. It's okay. This is the only thing that Democrats have been doing for two months. Yeah, that's that's just denial, that tweet. That is like a classic bit of political denial because the progressives are literally dangling their hostage over the precipice going, see, we meant it, we meant it. And and Pelosi caved to them and and kind of stuck it to her moderates. The moderates know it. People who've been following this whole debacle know it. Um, and I think Noah's right. They, they're in denial about the fact that they might have uh, blown it up and the leadership doesn't want to acknowledge that yet. But it's very clear to people who've been watching this back and forth. I mean, and uh, then to to go from Josh, who was basically a you know, I mean, he is a he is a progressive himself, uh, you know, unambiguously. But uh, John Harwood, um, who uh, I believe is where is he now? Is he still at CNBC? No, he's the White House correspondent of CNN. So he's the White House correspondent of CNN. Uh, you may remember John Harwood from the 2015 Republican debate debacle, where he was the cnbc host and basically spent the entire time insulting the republicans on stage and and raising a very legitimate question about why it was that he should be allowed to moderate a republican debate if his purpose was basically to just you know discredit republicans uh, here's what he said last night reality check if democrats end up passing a large economic package via both bills that they can enthusiastically promote the appearance of mess division disarray in the fall of 2021 will be entirely irrelevant in 2022. Won't matter even a little. Now, that may be true. It may be true that if they can get it done, what matters is that they will have gotten it done. But see, they, they, they're not getting it done. Uh, that's what happened is that, uh, yeah, if, if what happened didn't happen, but something else happens, <laughs> that is good, then that will be good. But if what you're doing is covering what just happened or what is happening, which is failure and stasis and and uh, internecine warfare and genuine divisions, both ideological, regional, 
and uh, about the future of of the party, then happy talk is demented. Of course the Democrats can pull themselves out of a nosedive. Of course they can pass popular bills and then drop unpopular aspects of of their bills and all of that. Like anybody can do anything at any time. You know, an alcoholic can quit drinking. A drug addict can can, you know, uh can get off, you know, can get off crack and and become a an upstanding citizen, but it doesn't mean that it's going to happen simply because it can. In fact, the predictor of the the best predictor of the future is the behavior in the present and in the recent past and what we've seen is a catastrophic failure. The Among best Democrats, predictor. they had a deal, they had a piece of legislation that everybody could support, which was the hard infrastructure bill. There was a deal, and then the progressives said, well, we don't want you – we don't want Democrats to have this victory because what we need them to do is to do the bigger thing that we want. And so we're going to point a gun at our own heads and say we're going to blow our brains out uh, so that we can get the larger bill. And if we can't get that, we can't get anything, and nah, 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 nah. Uh, the – Chief of Staff to Jamal Bowman, the freshman progressive from Westchester County, uh, tweeted the following last night. Praise be to all the progressive staff who won't get credits or headlines, but did their part in making sure we held the line. Praise be, said uh, uh, Sarah Jerisu. Uh, like, imagine that. Praise be, because the what they did was hold the line. Leadership set this vote for this past Monday. So the Senate passed this, by the way, on August 10th. Um, look, it was the summertime. House was on recess. What I understand. They get back in early September. They put this on the calendar, and they've been engaged in negotiations over it for three and a half weeks. They put a vote on the table. They have to move it. They put another vote on the table. It would have failed. The notion here that they can go back to the same playbook and it'll somehow pass absent some new series of negotiations, some pot sweetening, some new deal is is fanciful. They have 24 hours now to get this done in its current iteration. If they don't, it's got to go back to the drawing board. That's going to take another week, another week, another two weeks, another three weeks. Who knows? And then we're in the middle of the holiday season. Stuff doesn't get done in the middle of the holiday season unless you have this sort of, you know, real forceful presidency pushing it, a la Barack Obama, where we had reconciliation uh, pass on Christmas Eve. I mean, that's a sort of extraordinary circumstances now they're looking they're looking at. And I don't see any appetite for that. Well, one of one of the thing one of the reasons I think we're seeing a lot of, oh, nothing to see here. It's fine. We still got another day. Uh, all, all signs look good is that remember just a few days ago, a lot of the well, the moderates and and uh, uh, some others in Congress were saying, if only Joe Biden would get more involved. You know, he knows how the system works. He could get in there. He could really help negotiate a deal. He did that, and it still failed. So I think there's also a bit of covering for the administration's inability and ineffectiveness at actually brokering a deal here. He, they, as of this morning, he did his influence has not moved the needle at all. There's no reason why this can't pass right now. There's no reason why this right. bipartisan infrastructure deal can't pass this hour. The fact that it's not is nothing to do with the legislation, has nothing to do with the president, has everything to do with uh, grand strategic visions within the party that are in conflict, that are irreconcilable. But so, I mean, this is why, you know, what's interesting to me now is that so for, for, for it to pass in the future and really for them to move forward in general, doesn't the party now have to finally decide which which force uh, shapes it at this point? Is it is it the moderate party? Or is it the progressive party? Because this 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 is not working. This 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 literally doesn't work for them. Well, I think we know the force that's shaping it. It's the progressive party. If it weren't the progressive party, uh, by the way, the notion that a that a, that a trillion dollar infrastructure bill uh, is the moderate course, granted, it got it got you know a third of the more than a third of the Republican caucus to vote for it because it's a lot of pork. So in that sense, it's moderate rather than simply being ideologically left wing. But, um, you know, it is, again, like 
outside of an emergency, it's like the largest spending bill in American history or something like that that doesn't involve uh, raising taxes to pay for it. Um, $500 billion in new spending and $700 billion in old spending that's being rejiggered or something like that. Like, it's a huge bill. And so now the Overton window has shifted so radically that we're looking at this and saying, well, you know, that's a, you know, it's really, it's compact. It's a compact it's a compact piece of legislation that's really focused on infrastructure. I mean, this is like this is like a gigantic, you know, sucking money out of the U.S. economy and then pouring it through government uh, out to kind of you know union contractors and stuff like that. I mean, let's let let's face it. But having said that, you know, watching Democrats and liberals say uh, that it's you know. Um, you know, it's pocket change. It's a, it's a con. Like, it's not enough. We want more. And we're not going to spend anything unless we can spend, you know, a whole lot more. It reminds me of this uh, passage in Jeanette Walls's amazing memoir, The Glass Castle, uh, which is about her uh, being raised by these incredibly irresponsible, wildly impecunious parents. And um, she is driving along on the lower uh, east side of Manhattan, and she sees her parents dumpster diving. She hasn't seen them in a couple of years, and they're like they're dumb. They're looking for stuff in a dumpster, and she basically, in shame, kind of pulls over, goes to them, and says, "What do you need? Like, what's going on? Oh my God, you know this is so awful. How can I help you?" And they say, "She's like, how much do you need to get yourself out of the hole that you're in?" And this is the 1980s or the early 1980s or something. And her parents say, "Well, you know." Like a mil, I think a million dollars uh, would 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 do. You know, I think you know. Then we could really, you know, we could really set ourselves on a, you know, on on, on a good course. She's like a working journalist, uh, you know, a gossip columnist at New York Magazine. She doesn't have a million dollars. She doesn't have ten thousand dollars. You know, she was gonna. So, I'm not dis- I'm not comparing the Democratic Party to dumpster diving. I'm saying that there is a kind of delusional quality to this notion that um you're in a position where you don't have uh, a consensus behind massive amounts of spending and when it comes down to it and people say okay what do you want like let's just let's just get out of this we're we're, we're at a dead end so let's get out of this let's 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 try to share a win and move onward and what is that going to cost and they're like well you know you know a million dollars would uh you know that could really we could that that, that would really help you know, and and at that point, you say, well, you know, you people are crazy. Like, I don't know how else to look at this. I don't know how else to look at the refusal to refusal to support a bill that everybody in the Democratic Party would have diff- literally no difficulty supporting on the grounds that it must die because it's a cheap way out for other people uh, in their own coalition not to, to spend the giant amounts of money that they want to spend. It's um it's a head spinning piece of logic. Um at least when Republicans started tanking the government in 2011, 2010 and onward, a they were opposed to the party in power, not the party in power. And b they have a ideological philosophy that said what we want we came here to do nothing and what we're going to do is try to make the government do nothing, which is manifestly irresponsible because that's actually government is supposed to do some things and do various things and and all of that so it's kind of crazy to think that what you can do is stop it in its tracks i mean you can but eventually it has to start up again and then you look irresponsible and stupid um in this case this is the party that wants to spend money and everybody agreed to spend a lot of money and then other people and then the vanguard of the party says we're not going to spend this money because we want to spend more money. And this is, and if we spend this money, then we're not going to get to spend more money. Well, by the way, logically, why not? That's the other part, which I think Noah's even sort of, if you bank a win and then you put a little distance between this and the next big spending thing, you might get the bigger spending thing later. Once the elephant, you know, once once the you know once the excuse me the 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 snake in the like in the little prince digests the elephant, 
like the elephant has to go through the snake's body and then get digested and then you can it could maybe eat another elephant it's not going to eat two elephants at once maybe so you know uh, backing off letting this happen and then pushing the giant spending thing into early 2022 i don't really think it's going to happen but you have more a greater chance of success that way than this way i don't know i mean i could be wrong I'm wrong about many things, and uh, and so uh, in order to provide a check against my own sense of the uh, you know conventional wisdom on a lot of things, I really turn to my friend David Bonson and his newsletters, DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com. Uh, from the Bonson Group, the three billion dollar bicoastal manage- financial management and services firm that he runs you go to dividendcafe.com you can subscribe to david's two newsletters um he sent me uh, a, a bracing uh corrective or sort of like a you know what is a kind of uh where he is trying to get people to understand his view of inflation he sent me this morning a kind of a preview of dividendcafe.com which comes out tonight about inflation and his main point here is if you really want to understand inflation at this moment, because he believes that we are in a deflationary era, not an inflationary era, you have to look at one very specific cause, and that is the worldwide shortage in semiconductors. Price levels, he writes, are most problematic where something touches the semiconductor story. And guess what? A lot of things touch the semiconductor story. Years of underinvestment into capacity for it has caught up with us. It's always and forever the supply side, my friends. And whether it is an electronics product or an automobile, the supply chains are turned upside down. Economics 101 tells you what happens next. Prices go up and demand stays steady or grows as supply comes down, period. So he is locating a specific inflationary trend within what he believes to be a global and long-term deflationary trend. This is why it is such bracing material that he produces at the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. Go subscribe today to the products of the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial management and services industry. So I don't know, maybe they can pull a rabbit out of the hat today. And then all uh, everything that we've talked about will be, you know, will, will, will be negated and uh, we will have looked foolish. Uh, I'm not going to play the, you know, the sort of McLaughlin group game and say, what are the odds of that happening? Uh, no. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand. Like, basically, if you couldn't vote at 1 a.m. this morning, I don't know why you're going to be able to vote at 1 p.m. this afternoon. Uh, but am I missing something? No. What does human nature tell you? <laughs> I, I think all of the happy talk is actually destructive. Uh, of you know if, if everybody if if the liberals and reporters on twitter were panicking on behalf of the democrats and saying do something do something you got to get this bill oh my god then maybe there would be countervailing pressure against the progressive uh you know uh onanism about how wonderful it is that they held the line and made sure that they didn't that the 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 big the smaller bill didn't go through but I don't see any countervailing pressure. Where's the pressure that's telling them that they need to pass this today before the House goes out of session? Well, so here's a question. What do progressives think the next step is? Because I'm genuinely confused. They think they've achieved a victory here. Now what? Well, you know, it's like yada, yada, yada. It's like the, the Seinfeld yada, 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 right? It's like... There's a bill, and then you, you there are two bills, and you kill one bill. You make sure you kill one bill because you're not getting the other bill, and yada, 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 you get both bills. But we don't know what the yada, yada, yada is, <laughs> right? Um, uh, this is what some of us went through. I go back to the Tea Party analogy, but again, the Tea Party at least was in the opposition. Um, when the Tea Party decided that they wanted to tank uh, you know, the debt ceiling, in August of, of 2011, and a lot of us were like, well, what's your, what's your end game here? And they would say, well, we're fighting. We're fighting. It's, it's fighting. We're fighting, and uh, there's going to be a fight, and we're fighting, and we're showing people we're not going to bow down, and we're going to fight, and we're fighting. And it's like, okay, but what's, what's the end game here? And they, 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 they couldn't get there. Similarly, Ted Cruz 
kind of leads a government shutdown in 2013 for three weeks. Uh, his goal being to force Obama to withdraw or or replace or you know somehow end Obamacare, and it was so we're going to shut the government down and yada yada yada. Obama is going to is going to withdraw Obamacare, and there is no you know if you don't know what the yada 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 is, then you're not getting to the final stage. But there's there's a larger issue here too that I think we shouldn't uh, forget, and that's that we're talking about all of these progressives as Democrats, and many of them aren't. They're democratic socialists. They see themselves as actually separate from the party. If you read their literature, which I do, uh, they are as critical of the Biden administration from the left as we are from the right. They do not actually see themselves as a vanguard of the party. They see themselves as a distinct future of a dying neoliberalism. And I think in some ways, they're, they're, that's why they, can, they will claim a victory no matter what, because the disruption factor is what they right now value highly. It's when they primary their own people with people like AOC and others and they win. The disruptive stage of this, this democratic socialist war on the Democratic Party is we're in it now. And so for them, any disruption of the system as it was and is, is a victory. That is the primary obstacle before moderates and even joe biden even though he's endorsed the progressive position here and is driving the progressive position we shouldn't suggest that he's adversarial in any way towards the progressive uh tactics here i think he's the progenitor of them nevertheless they don't care if this fails they don't care if the biden presidency is not remembered fondly by posterity they don't care it would advance their position they are adversarial to the goals that any new presidency any first term presidency should be pursuing legislative objectives, economic prosperity, normalcy, uh, all that stuff that you're supposed to go to the polls, remember, and reward for a second ahead of a second term. They're opposed to all of that. And until this White House understands that they're dealing with an adversarial coalition, they're not friends, they're not buddies. This is Ron Klain's group, and he thinks they're all on the same team. They are not. And until they get that through their heads, this is going to look increasingly like a failed presidency. Well, Abe, Noah, Noah is, is sort of like living uh, in the midst of a paradox because on the one hand, he's saying this coalition is going to tank the Biden presidency. And on the other hand, he is saying that the, that the logic of the coalition's actions follow the president's own logic. Biden is the one who said, I'm not doing one without the other. Then he withdrew it, right? He said this in July. He said, I'm not, I'm not, I, there's no infrastructure bill without a, without a giant uh, budget reconciliation bill to spend all this money. Um, uh, and then, and then, you know, that basically threatened the infrastructure bill. So they kind of backed off the rhetoric, but, but Jamal Bowman and, and, uh, and Jayapal and the, and the progressives then took up the mantle and, and went running with it. Again, we have this very peculiar situation, Abe, where uh, they, they're not in the opposition. They are the governing coalition of the United States. They have the White House, they have the Senate, and they have the House. When you had a revolutionary force of this sort, like, a, like an internal counter-revolutionary force, whatever you want to call it, in the Republican Party, they came to Washington because the idea was they were going to be better opposing Obama than the rhino get along to go along losers that they that who were less radical than they that they replaced in 2011. But these guys are part of the a the the free spending big government coalition that is in charge. So the paradox comes entirely from Biden. I mean, it, this is this is the paradox in, in his head and, and and you know, in his approach to dealing with this. I mean, you know, it exemplifies the difference between the way, let's say, establishment Republicans looked at the revolutionary force within their midst and the way the Democrats do the same. As we've said, uh, Republicans, when they when they were, were met with, with a sort of similar disruptive force. Um, the idea is, no, these guys are bad. They're, they're, they're tearing down our project. The, the approach among liberals to, you know, even, you know, moderate liberals to people at the squad is, is, 
they're just a little too idealistic. They're just a little too in a hurry. Their, their hearts are in the right place, um, but they don't understand that you have to go at it slow. They have failed up in this up to this point to recognize that no, they are not they're not dealing with people who are just in the hurry in a hurry to achieve the same goals as you. They're seeking to replace you. Um, so, which is why um, for them the end game is a little more down the line. It's a little more long term. They're looking to replace them. Okay, so I want to talk about uh, a, a slightly different uh, crew of people. That is to say, the kind of uh, never Trumper conservatives, former conservatives, let's say, uh, who have basically joined uh, because they have learned so much and got, gotten so uh, distressed by by the uh, evils of the Republican Party over the last five years that they've effectively joined the Biden coalition, in part because they want to make sure that if Biden is a, a success, then then Trump can never reemerge and there can be a real reckoning and all of that. And I refer today to two op-ed pieces by two old friends of mine, one of my three or four oldest friends, David David Brooks in the New York Times, and Michael Gerson in the Washington Post. So David is writing about how we need the $4 trillion spending bill, something, you know, if you had put me, if I, I went back in a time machine and I went back to 1995 when uh, when we were working at the Weekly Standard together and I said, you know what, 26 years later, this is what you're going to be writing, uh, he would say, oh, you're a crazy person. What the hell is the matter with you? Of course, I would never write that, but here we are. Um, and then there's Mike Gerson, uh, George W. Bush's chief speechwriter and all of that, who, who says... Um, though I understand that the GOP must be beaten and beaten regularly for its own good, I'm not yet used to pulling for the other side in American politics, uh, but I'm doing my best to master the complex ploys and machinations of my new team. The first democratic stratagem he is now complaining is to devalue your own accomplishments. So he's looking at this and saying, Senate passage of the infrastructure package is an achievement that eluded Biden's predecessor and a testament to his negotiating skills. So what did Democrats do, he asks, they raised the expectation of a $3.5 trillion social spending bill guaranteeing a public impression of failure if they only get the infrastructure package. Second Democratic dictum, muddy, muddy your message. Third Democratic dictum, you know, calling for one revolution can be clarifying, calling for several simultaneous revolutions, meaning a bill that features universal pre-K, dental benefits and Medicare, an extension to the child tax credit, promotion of agricultural conservation, improvement to veterans affairs hospitals, an allowance for Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices, two free years of community college, yada, yada, yada. Right. That is that's too much. It's too much. And you need calling for one revolution can be clarifying calling for several simultaneous ones is the abdication of prioritization. So what does he want? He wants them, of course, to focus on what he wants, you know, which is they should just run on the child tax credit because that's that's the thing that he thinks is great. And that's what they should do. And he's very, very um, upset. So uh, what I'm struck by here is this kind of what you might call sort of the neoliberals, right? These are like, these are the people who left the conservative coalition because of their disgust at the ideological extremism of uh, where uh, their own coalition and their party went and have sort of joined up with the other side and what they're, and here they are and they just joined up. They just joined up. And what are they doing? In, in this case, maybe it's a little like uh, joining up with Nixon and then Nixon like pursues a detente like crazy. Uh, in 1973, 1974, um, they're like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Don't do this to me. Be, you know, be the party I want you to be. Well, you know, guess what? Sorry. Yeah. I, Sorry. I read, it, they're I, not, it's not, the, that's not what's happening here. Well, I, uh, Gerson's piece in particular was frustrating because I read it as someone who who thinks that, you know, who the candy store is going to open in an hour and we're going to go in and select some really delicious pieces of this and that and the other. But in fact, what the progressives want is to kick the doors wide and loot the whole store. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. That's too much. But uh, to the earlier point, I mean, I'm going to be a one note uh, uh, figure on today's podcast, but that the fact that Gerson and Brooks are on the side uh, arguing for Biden's uh, version of things 
helps the progressives because that they can say in the same way that the Trump folks said about the Republicans and even the moderate Republicans who since left the party, they can say they're all in this together. They're all corrupt. They're all kind of they all just are going to do their thing, which is against you. You know, the populist message on that end can is very powerful when you can point to all these people joining forces in the same way for the progressives. They can say, look, it's David Brooks. This guy's arguing this. We know it's got to be corrupted then. So we've got to go um, more radical. Brooks is column is revealing in <clears throat> two particular ways. One, he says that these bills should not be evaluated on their merits. They should be evaluated on their intentions. Uh, quote, the democratic spending bills are economic packages that serve moral and cultural purposes. They should be measured by their cultural impact, not merely by some wonky analysis. He goes on to say the following sentence, which no conservative would ever allow escape their lips. Quote, statecraft is soulcraft." Unquote. Um, that is a paradigmatic understanding of how government should function, not how it does function, but how it should function. That is not native to conservatism, even a more progressive conservatism that predates a kind of Goldwaterite variety that we we in the remnant adhere to. Um, it is an idea of what government is capable of that conservatives understand is flawed fundamentally at root and leads you down cognitive cul-de-sacs that produce unintended consequences that result in government not functioning, being dysfunctional, producing uh, a variety of unintended consequences that government cannot even address, that civil society must address. Um, it's a misapprehension that I think uh, is, is, is a fundamental distinction between what, what a conservative is and what a progressive is. I mean, I want to. I want to make. I, I think it's 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 important to uh, issue one proviso for what you're saying, which is that the phrase "statecraft is soulcraft" actually comes from George Will. It was a book that George Will wrote in 1983, um, which was his essential attack on libertarianism. It was the idea that whatever whatever government does is a as a as a as an expression of uh, America's communitarian or collective uh, ideas. Uh, has is a moral act in one fashion or another and uh you therefore want government to do things that um that strengthen and abide by uh proper morals rather than rather than improper morals and it's a problematic book it's not a successful book statecraft to soulcraft because it, it's very vague but um but uh, you you can certainly say that you know what what government does has a moral frame one of the reasons that we oppose things Look, it's very simple. They want to spend three and a half trillion dollars. There are two reasons to oppose it, or three. One is it's too much money and we can't afford it. The second and more important one is it's not going to work. This whole idea that David expresses here, which is that the intention is to redignify the lower middle and lower classes of the United States through government largesse is not going to work. The definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over and again and expecting the same result. And we have now had almost 90 years of New Deal-style spending and policy that has done nothing to ennoble or, you know, moralize or save, uh, you know, the save the American people morally. Uh, that is not, it, it turns out that maybe that's a mistake uh, that government attempts to do such things because the unintended consequences of this kind of spending are vast and gigantic. And because they're unintended and they are so almost unknowable, we don't really know what's going to happen, but we have enough experience to know that a lot of it isn't going to be good. And so for for David, among other people, to say, this is important because it sounds good, it feels good, and it says, I care about you, that is um, really, we have to go back there and then learn this lesson all over again? Really? You know, I mean, fine, if that's, if history just is a an endless loop and a constant cycle of the same things over and over again, the eternal return, as Nietzsche put it, then fine. Uh, but, you know, I sort of expect better from people who lived through and themselves were um, exponents of a different opinion not to fall prey to the fantasy that this kind of thing is going to have these 
positive consequences without negative consequences. But that's that that fantasy and the gloss he's trying to give on it is cover for the Biden administration. I think, and again, this sounds cynical, but I think the progressives that are that have been focused so much on the number, as Noah said, not the policy number first, how big, big, bigger, bigger is best. They're doing that. This is about power and flexing and showing that they can control a party that they, as Abe said, eventually want to take over. And I think what what's disappointing to me about uh, Gerson and Brooks's columns is that they are doing the one thing that I think conservatives have a have a uh, good and consistent record of doing, which is reminding the kind of utopian feel good. This is a good moral policy types that even if your intentions are good, the consequences might not be. And that is because you have to look at the tragic side of human nature, not just the optimistic one. You have to assume that some people are going to behave to grab power, be selfish, you know, uh, manipulate the system in a way that is just unfortunately part of who we are as human beings. And the government, by codifying that and throwing a lot of money at certain interest groups, encourages that at, at a scale that is very difficult for the individual who only has his or her individual freedom to combat. And that, of course, arguments about the welfare state, there, there's all kinds of social policy programs where we can see, as you said, John, that has played out over decades. But I think in this case, they're giving moral cover to the Biden argument. I don't think the progressives really care about that part of it. Okay, guys, let me uh, let me pull back a little bit and talk to you about our, our second sponsor today, Nutrafol, because when it comes to thinning hair, you no longer have to choose between natural remedies and those that work. There's a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness without drugs or prescriptions. Did you know that there are five root causes of thinning hair? Nutrafol is the hair supplement that goes beyond genetics to target stress, hormones, nutrition, metabolism, and environmental factors that may be impacting your hair. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage without compromise with its 21 potent natural ingredients. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 1,500 top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code COMMENTARY and save $15 off your first month subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code COMMENTARY. Um, Abe, you know, I made that analogy to the to Jeanette Walls's parents in the Glass Castle saying, you know, give us a million dollars and maybe we can stop dumpster diving. Uh, I note that, uh, for example, in Gerson's piece, and I, Brooks has mentioned this also and others have too, that the, the, the unambiguously popular thing among, you know, uh, uh, let's say unorthodox conservatives or conservatives who believe in more state action than others, uh, as well as liberals and all this, is this idea that the child tax credit, the giant expansion of the child uh, tax credit, which uh, was part of the coronavirus emergency bill, should be made permanent. That's like $3,000 a kid or something with a with a, another subvention for kids under five or something like that. And that uh, you read these things and it says, you know, this is going to pull 4 million children or 40 million children or 50 billion children out of poverty. It has done so. It did so in the last year. They were pulled out of poverty because of the child care tax credit. And the reason I bring up this Jeanette Walls analogy is, again, what bill of goods are we being sold here? One of the reasons that you don't just give people this child tax credit and say, okay, here it is, is that it's not going to pull them out of poverty. It doesn't work that way. Chances are that money will be spent, and a lot of people are going to spend it foolishly and recklessly and with no purpose that will do them any good it's like winning in the lottery or something like that it's like you know suddenly you get this kind of windfall do you invest it do you pay down bills do you do it's not clear what you do with it but we have enough experience of human nature to know that the idea that it will be applied properly to lift the children whom it is directed uh, out of uh, straight-laced poverty conditions is not really the way this goes. But we are supposed now to believe that human nature is suspended and that we're simply just supposed to, again, expect that there will be a different result. 
when history tells us otherwise. This is why I think Brooks's argument is ultimately this sort of attempt at trying to ennoble vanity. Because if the idea is just to praise the intention, then you don't care about the results, right? It's like, oh, so great. You, you, it's important that people be known as caring regardless of, of the detriments that, that their attempts to care inflict on uh, other people. Um, that doesn't make, that's, that's the sort of like, you know, it's a, it's a kind of limousine liberal, uh, you know, uh, approach to things, you know, it's like, you know, you, you know, let it be known that I'm throwing money at these problems. And that's, and that's, a, and that's a good thing that that's, that's good for the American soul. Well, and it requires ennobling dependence, which is right. not something in the American way, conservative or mainstream liberal, that was ever something that one touted as a benefit. It was, but, this should be a temporary safety net. Now it's ennobling as a permanent thing. And the way we're talking about this here is sort of reflective of the of the democratic paradigm. This is not a natalist UBI. It is a tax credit. You have to pay taxes to be eligible for this. If you do not get a refund at the end of the year, you have to pay it back. The IRS is going to come and collect this money when you file next year. It's going to come as a big surprise to a lot of people. And we should note Back in July, I don't know whether this is just a hinky poll result or not, but Morning Consult and Politico found when they asked whether this child tax credit should be made permanent, just 35% said it definitely or probably should. Another 52% said probably not or definitely not. People are not saying give us free money forever. But, you know, this the, the fact that he even makes tries to make this argument brings up the idea that I think a lot of the old sort of analyses and sort of basic understandings and objections to a lot of feel-good policies have really just fallen by the wayside. Like, these things are not discussed anymore. You know, it's like, you know, Jen Psaki said this week that uh, uh, you know, tax rate businesses won't pass tax, tax raises on to uh, the customers in the form of uh, higher prices. What? You know, this is, a, this is another sort of thing. Like, there's no understanding of, you know, the history of, of the, of that happening, you know, automatically, you know, this is, it's just like, we're, we're at this place where I guess all the basic objections have to be rearticulated. Pretty much. I mean that, you know, the arguments never end and the excuses never, never end. And the bad faith arguments never end. And then it turns out that enough people make bad faith arguments and then structure the bad faith arguments in a way to caress them and and try to make them conform with some observable reality that is modern monetary theory which says that you know 20 trillion dollars in debt isn't debt that spending isn't spending that that uh you know uh that you can spend three and a half trillion dollars and you're actually spending nothing like that is and and people genuinely argue this you know it's that it's that um you know, that bastardized or much bastardized Orwell quote, which is that, you know, some ideas are so stupid that only an intellectual could believe them. Um, and so, you know, that's that's partially where we're living. I mean, I'm reminded, uh, talk about a weird anecdote to pop into your head. So 40 years ago, 37, 38 years ago, when I'm like 23, 24, 25, I'm working at the Washington Times. I write an attack on We Are the World. The song "We Are the World." Okay, you're a monster. How dare so you? Why did I do that? Because you know, "We Are the World" was a was a was an effort to support, uh, uh, you know, like send money to victims of the Ethiopian famine. And I said, "This is foolish, misguided efforts because the Ethiopian famine is a man-made famine. It is a politicized. It is a famine that is being used by the." dictatorship in Ethiopia to control a civil war, to control a population, to immiserate them so that the government can can consolidate power. If you give money to it, you are actually, A, your money's not going to get anywhere where you want it to go, so you are, have, there's an opportunity cost, and B, you're sort of covering up this fact and therefore uh, allowing uh, 
allowing the leaders in Ethiopia to, um, you know, evade moral responsibility for their, you know, their internal genocide almost. And I was invited on to Crossfire. And this is the early years of Crossfire, Pat Buchanan and Tom Braden, Buchanan on the right and Braden on the left. So I go on to talk about this. And uh, Braden says, what's the story? And I, you know, they, 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 so I, I, I lay this out as I had much more, you know, I dated my fingertips about how much money, what, where the, there was food sitting on docks that was rotting because it had already been delivered, but they were refusing to ship it out to, you know, from the capital and all of that. And I finished my little peroration, which was like full of facts. And Braden looked at me and said, he was a sort of querulous old man at this point and said, Mr. Podhoritz, what's wrong with helping people? I mean, that, so in the end, when you get down to it, you're like, look, this is going to foster dependency and it's actually spending. It's going to increase the debt, you know, the debt and the national debt. And that passes on to our children and this and that and the other thing. And then the repost is, what's wrong with helping people? And the answer is, well, you're not helping people. But you think you, so you, so this is for you. It's actually not for the people. It's for well, you. That's why you say it's the vanity, right. Abe, right? Well, the other anecdote is that we didn't, we we haven't done, and we rarely do this until we have kind of structural failure or long-term social spending on these sorts of issues. But I was reminded, John, when you were discussing this, that the anecdote I recall from that first wave of checks that everybody got during the pandemic, which I, you know, even we said, because of the forced closures and the shutdown and people losing their jobs, can't really argue against that but there was a there was a deep dive into crime in Philadelphia and I want to say it was ProPublica but it was one of these like big long stories about crime during the pandemic there was a little fact thrown in there that I hadn't seen reported elsewhere and that was the very high number of people who used those checks to buy guns and were happy to tell you this was great I got this money and I went out and then I could afford several guns which they then used in the commission of crime and I thought huh, never crossed my mind because I'm not going to go rob a bank. But like, of course it would. You have money, free money. You're not necessarily going to go use it to enroll your kid in an enrichment program. You're going to do what you've learned to do to survive. And that's not always good for society. You you made an important point by saying that, you know, we supported, as most people did, the idea uh, that COVID represented a unique emergency uh, in the, you know, a, a moment, a dire moment in the world economy. You know, the unemployment rate went up to, I don't know, 30%, 27 some some insane number at a, at a given point. And the idea was just open the spigot, do whatever you can. And, you know, I think one of the cleverest things that was done was the, pay, the Payroll Protection Act, which effectively privatized unemployment. That is to say that there's say that money was given to businesses so that businesses could keep, could, would not lay people off. They could, they could have continuity of employment. Um, and, and uh, this was a much more efficient way for that money to be delivered rather than going to, you know, from government into hands where people may not, may, might not have had the modality to collect it. Um, the whole point about that was that it was an emergency emergencies happen rarely and they are not they are they are unanticipatable and you're not supposed to anticipate them because you don't know what they're going to happen and then you need to tailor specific measures to solve the problem that's there because it may be different the next time and here we have a child tax credit that was another way of opening the spigot particularly as you say Christine because of the nature of the employment and unemployment problem and the problem with what to do with kids and about kids when schools were closed and all that, it's by definition not supposed to be permanent. It's, it is an emergency and you suspend certain types of moral understandings about dependency and not only is it not ennobling to be supported by government in that way, it is, it is morally debilitating. Uh, it removes agency from adults. It makes them it makes them feel powerless over that you know they they can't change their own circumstances or they come to rely on an external force to keep them going rather than have the pride and the dignity in supporting themselves and making do for for their own. And that's you know that that's just the the world uh, as we have come to know it. And and we have, we had as I say almost ninety years of experience 
with the, some of the deleterious consequences of that kind of direct government support. And yet it doesn't matter because there are people who are just morally committed to the idea that we should all live as vassals of the state. Um, let me just uh, con- uh, finish up here with our final sponsor, ExpressVPN. You've, um, you've browsed in incognito mode. I know you have. But it, let me tell you, it's not as incognito as you think. It's uh, a Google product like, like the Chrome browser itself. And uh, Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. Someone's, uh, there's a class action suit in California on this question of how Google is collecting user data even while you're in incognito mode. And Google's defense is incognito does not mean invisible. Oh, okay. So how do you make yourself invisible as possible online? You use ExpressVPN. Uh, since in incognito mode, your online activity gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data, think about ExpressVPN, uh, which every time you connect to it, you get a random IP address that's shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. Data harvesters can use your own unique IP address to identify you in your location. But when you got this random address that a lot of people share, it makes it a lot harder for third parties to identify you or harvest your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection, whether you're on your phone, your laptop, or your smart TV. So if you really want to go incognito, protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated uh, VPN, visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. Get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash commentary. Go to expressvpn.com slash commentary to learn more. So uh, we here we are at the beginning of uh, October. Anybody got any uh, plans for the weekend or uh, fun thing? Going leafing? Anyone going leafing? Abe going leafing? I, I didn't know that, that there was a, a verb. Of it. What, what, what no, is, it's what, a creepy verb. It's leaf, leaf peepers. Aren't they called leaf peepers? It's, leaf, it's yeah, always you're struck peeping, me as you're peeping, you're peeping leaves. Or a New England, <laughs> New England phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you can go. To, you can go to the Shenandoah. You know, you can go to Virginia, West Virginia. The, They're not it's pretty quite beautiful changing there. here yet, though. So okay, it's too early. Is it so taxing, you're not leafing? leafing? Does, does it? Does it? What does it require? Is it? Is it remotely related to exercise? No exercise skills. <laughs> no, you're no, you're driving in a car. Yeah on a road and trees are over you and they're changing color. Mm. You have to repel off. So you're the beholding. Side of the cliff. Okay. Well, that's, you're, that's... you're 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 seeing riots of orange and yellow and red, and saying, "Ah, you know what a glorious thing nature is." It's a great. This sounds like a, a new interest of mine. This is amazing to me. You're like you've never gone driving in the fall to see the to see the foliage. No, I, I have. I just I didn't. I didn't. Literally, it's the term leafing. I didn't know. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, apparently you're not going leafing, no, I'm not uh, going and leafing. and uh, I, I'm not either. Christine, are you going going leafing? Or you're saying that you're saying that in the uh, below the Mason Dixon line is too early to leave. It's not. They're not quite changing yet. Uh, it's it's a little too early here. Yeah. Okay. So no no leaf peeping for me. No. Today. What's going on in Central New Jersey in Ray leaves and color? Um, the very. Tippy tops of the uh, canopy are just starting to turn right now. Okay. And, um, so yeah, there's no exactly. reason to go. So he just used a lot of technical yet. lingo there. I think we have a secret leaf. Yeah, the, t- on the our tippy community. top of the canopy, right? <laughs> the canopy. Okay, so very scientific. Yeah. Okay. So apparently, no one's doing anything this weekend. Do, do I gather that? Nothing fun. I'm doing Aikido, which okay. is what I always do. <laughs> uh, there we go. Okay. Well, um, uh, for the first time in uh, several months, I, I have actually written a, a new movie review, uh, which you can re- you'll be able to read later today at the at freebeacon.com of the of the new bizarre uh, supernatural superhero supervillain uh, version of the Odd Couple called Venom. There will be carnage. I don't think that it's going to be of all that much interest to many commentary podcast listeners, but you can. But it will to our teenage sons. So thank you for. (laughs) Yes, uh, you're 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 very welcome. Um, It's uh, it's not good, but if you want to see a Neil Simon comedy in the guise of a movie about a about about a, a demon and a man sharing the same body. Uh, the theme being, can two creatures, one from outer space and one from here, 
share a body without driving each other crazy, like the opening of The Odd Couple, uh, this movie is is for you. Uh, so uh, given the fact that I, everybody looks very puzzled on our on our on our <laughs> zoom here uh at the possibility of even thinking about doing anything this weekend aside from throwing other people around like christine's gonna do in an aikido studio uh i will uh bid you all a very uh, uh happy and contented uh, weekend so uh, we'll be back on monday for abe christina no i'm john Podhoritz. keep the candle burning